You are now listening to the Fat Fix Podcast with David Flowers, a show talking about all things fat loss and health for the general population. Helping people understand why they are in the position they're in right now, rather than just focusing on what they need to do. Your no-nonsense personal trainer friend that you can have access to in your pocket whenever you need some help, guidance or just to kick up the arse. Hello and welcome to the Fat Fix podcast for episode number 24. This week I was joined by Lyle McDonald, who is a very well-known exercise physiologist and author from the US. Lyle has been heavily involved in the fitness industry for decades and he's someone whose work I and I'm sure other fitness professionals have followed closely for a while and found some of his teachings invaluable. In this episode, we discussed all things female fat loss He delved deep into female physiology, such as the menstrual cycle, and he covered how you ladies can structure your nutrition around your cycle, and more importantly, how you can approach it without killing anyone or eating the house. Lyle does a great job of combining the science with practicality. This was truly a great discussion and one I hope all my female listeners will benefit from massively, and even other personal trainers who work with lots of female clients. So without further ado, this is episode number 24 of the Fat Fix podcast, Fat Loss for Females featuring Lyle McDonald. Hi Lyle. Hey, good to see you David. Thank you very much for coming on to the Fat Fix podcast today. Oh, thanks for having me. No worries. Just before we get started Lyle, would you like to just give the listeners a little bit of a rundown on who you are and what you do? Sure. Um, I, so I've been in the field forever. I've, I've gone from being a newbie to one of the old men in the industry. I, I got online in uh, 1993, right after I got out of college. I'd gone to UCLA to study exercise physiology. Um, wanted to be a better athlete than I was. And I went through a couple different things and got into the research, right? I had to go actually read physical, physical journals because we didn't have the internet yet got online as things were just kind of developing. Um, People seemed to like what I had to say, wanted to pay me to write uh, for these these fancy new things called websites. And you you have to realize like in 96, 97, nobody knew any of this was. And everybody thought it was a fad, you know, now it is the world. And um, published my first book in, I wanna say 1998 on low carbohydrate diets. And I've just been around forever. Um, I've done something like 14 or 15 books on various topics, I tend to uh, float between sort of very technical books about every 10 years that exhaust me, and then I'll write sort of shorter uh, stuff in between that's a little bit more more targeted, mostly fat loss and nutrition. It's kind of been, uh, it's funny, my, my degree is actually in exercise physiology, and most of what I've written about for years is, is nutrition, uh, at least in book format. So, so yeah, um, and then I think what sort of spurred this is for unimportant reasons, I, I started looking in great detail to women's physiology. It's a topic I'd put off for probably about a 10 years, and I learned exactly why when I decided to write this book, because women are complicated. And I don't mean that to be critical. Men are simple from just top to bottom, inside and out. We truly are. Women are on a whole nother level. Their physiology, the changes, the differences. And as I delved into this, like I said, I realized why I had not looked into it for a decade because it was exhausting. 
Um, partly because, I mean, I was starting from scratch. I had to learn the basics. I'm not a woman. I don't, I only have experience through many of these things indirectly through significant others. So I had to start from scratch. And the, the, the deeper I got, the deeper I could have gone. So anyway, this led to three and a half years to get this woman's book done, which is actually volume one. The project got so far out of control that I had to um, split it up. And the first volume is just diet and nutrition and fat loss. The second is, will be on training when it gets done. Um, so that's kind of what got me from there to here the long way. Yeah, I think that's the main reason why I wanted to get you on the show today. Because sure. Your book is fantastic i've started reading it myself recently i've been a big fan of your work for quite a while and okay. got the rapid fat loss book and i know a lot of people in the fitness industry know a lot about you um, yes. and so it would yeah just going off what you just said there we are going to delve deep and kind of pick apart important things in relation yeah. to your book and what people can kind of understand especially the general population because yes. a lot of it is very complex, like you said. Agreed, yes. Body and physiology is really complex. And yes, yeah, I think it would be a good place to just start with there, Lyle, in terms of why did you actually write that book? Because I know there is a lot of information out there with training and nutrition, and it does seem to be very geared towards men or just generic yes. without the considerations for yes. women's physiology. So it would be good yeah. to just touch upon that. And, and, I, and I touch on this in the book, like if you, you look at historically, sport was, was almost exclusively men, right? I actually, in the second volume, I, I looked into the history. If you go back to the early 20th century, the early, the first Olympics, there were exactly zero women. And really, there were handfuls and I mean, it, it, very small percentages. Women didn't really start to enter sports until maybe the 50s and the 60s. And most of this was being driven by the Germans and the Russians because they realized that they could win more medals by sending women to the Olympics because the competition wasn't as hard, wasn't as difficult. They pushed to have more women's events made. What's interesting is that's what got America to start caring about women's sports because we couldn't let the Russians and the Germans dominate, right? The Olympics had long been, uh, it was a place for countries to prove that their, their politics were superior through sport, right, during the Cold War. So things happen. Finally, in America, especially, we got something called Title, is it Title Nine or Title Twelve at the end of the seventies? They basically said uh, public schools. Now, in the U.S., public public and private schools are here reversed compared to I know the U.K. Here, public schools are free and private schools are cost money, and I think it's the opposite. Um, at least I know in the U.K. it is. Anyway, that public schools had to offer equal uh, resources to both male and females. And they meant everything, but this included sports. And then that just, that was it. For over the next 30 some odd years, women from, went from being only marginally represented in sports. Now at the Olympic level, it's about 45% of the athletes. In American sports, it's about 45% of the athletes, with the big difference being American football. American football has such an enormous number uh, of, of uh, competitors, but we, we're almost at equity or equality. But what this means is that from up until the last 10 or 20 years, almost all athletes were male. Their coaches were almost always male. There's still a, a, a real uh, dearth of female coaches, although that's gradually improving. So the information was basically de developed either for or on men, depending on how you want to look at it. 
Now, don't get me wrong, a lot of stuff we'll talk about, the generalities hold, right? It's not like fat loss and training for men and women has to be completely, there is certainly their general principles. Women simply have considerations that men do not have, will never face, and in many cases, the types of information that may be completely valid for you know, the average male may not only be less effective for women, but in some cases is actively harmful, right? And, and I, this is, there's a lot of detail on this in the book and I might touch on it. Like women have to deal with menstrual cycle dysfunction, the loss of their cycle. Now men can get into it too at the very extremes, men's testosterone, you know, marathon runners and stuff. But the damage it does to women's bodies is much worse. And some of it can be permanent. And men just don't face that. So a lot of that information said either not as effective for women or in some cases actively harmful. So it was important to me to, to kind of do two things. Like the book is about women. However, in many cases, I'm comparing, going, look, here's a woman's physiology. Here's how it differs from a male's physiology. And I don't want people to hear that that means that men are the, the standard, right? It's not one is better than the other or lesser. They're just different because that tends to get commonly uh, messed up. So basically it was to go, here's what the differences are and here are the implications of that in a practical sense for what women may need to do that differs from men. Yeah, it'd be good to just touch upon the differences between men and women's physiology for those mm -hmm. that may not be um, aware of the huge differences in terms of sure. It's obviously menstrual cycle, I'm sure everybody knows the differences between yes. that, but in terms of how our physiology is different in terms of the nutrition and training standpoint, how that sure. affects women harder than it does men and make fat loss yes. a lot more difficult for them. Yeah, so I mean, arguably the biggest difference is the menstrual cycle, right? Men, men are basically the same all day, every day. And if you're a coach, you've worked with male clients, they're basically the same dude walking to the gym every day. Women's physiology varies, right, across that average monthly cycle. That's, and I'm not going to get into the details. This is all in the book. We divide it into two parts. The first half of the cycle is different hormonally than the second half of the cycle. Uh, it changes how a woman's body uses nutrients, her hunger level, uh, energy expenditure. And many women, not all, will experience differences in their performance, their mood, their coordination. There's, there's more variability among women throughout this. Right, so whereas a guy walking in the gym is always the same. If you are a coach of, of female athletes or female clients, you've probably seen it some weeks or some days they come in and they're just, they look good, they're raring to go, they feel fantastic, and others, they're just dragging and their mood may be off. And again, this isn't all you know, meant to be critical, it just it is what it is. And it's very easy to lose sight of it, just go, ah, just come on, do it, get it together. And it doesn't work because this is a physiology that may be driving these behaviors. So that's kind of the big, and you see this, if you look at little boys and little girls before puberty, the differences are minimal. Their body types are very much the same. Their body composition is very the same. Physiology is very much the same. And at puberty, that's when they split. In boys, testosterone goes up, they gain muscle, they lose body fat. Women, they start their menstrual cycle, estrogen progesterone go up, they typically gain more body fat, they may gain hip and thigh fat, breasts develop, um, and their physiology is now completely different, right? So that's, that's really where the split occurs is at puberty, and that will be maintained until when a woman gets to in her late 
40s to early 50s when she goes through menopause and all of that stops. So women have, you know, a 30 to 35 year span where their physiology is just changing month to month to month. So that's really the, the biggest general difference. And I would say, I, when you start looking at the research, there tends to be this debate going, okay, is there really a gender difference or a sex-based difference in the sense of women's muscle is identical to men's muscle for, the, for all practical purposes. We put it under a microscope, it's the same. Her heart will be the same in terms of tissue. It'll be smaller on average, but it will be identical physiology. Her fat cells, kidneys, it's all basically the same in a physiological sense. Many of the differences in terms of energy expenditure, calorie expenditure, come down to the fact that women on average have 10% less muscle and 10% more body fat than, than men. And what researchers do is they go, ah, if we take their energy expenditure and we divide it by their muscle or their lean body mass, well, they're identical. So in that sense, there's no sex difference. But I think that misses the point, which is in a practical sense, there is because that difference is being driven hormonally. And those hormones are also changing, like I said, nutrients and appetite, all of those. So in a sense, the differences are not sex-based, but I think in a real-world sense, they clearly are. Because if those hormones weren't different, you wouldn't see the overall differences. So some of the big ones. On average, uh, by dint of being smaller, and by dint of having less lean body mass, which is like muscle and organs and everything, women will have a lower resting energy expenditure right? I mean, a smaller male will too, right? Smaller bodies burn fewer calories. Um, she'll typically be eating less. Uh, because she's smaller, she will burn less total calories during the same amount of exercise. And that's something I hopefully remember to come back to because that's kind of important. Um, but probably the bigger one in terms of a fat loss effect is what we know is that women's bodies tend to fight back harder and faster than men's, right? So I'm sure your listeners know on some level, when we diet, we try to lose fat, the body starts to fight back. You burn less calories, um, metabolism goes down, hunger starts to increase, sleep may be impaired, there's all these adaptations that occur to try to prevent us from losing body fat. It's worse in women. And the, the, the thought process is that in a very real sense, right, women, women had to maintain the human race. Like in a very, very real sense, like women are more likely to survive famines, more likely to survive out of like the horrors of concentration camps and stuff like that. Because women had to be able to not only support and get through childbirth, but generally speaking, take care of the child so it would survive. Whereas in a very real sense, one, once a man has contributed what he has to contribute to the, the child making process, if there's no food available, he's not really important or he's not required would it be helpful if he's around to find food sure but in a very real sense if the guy dies sooner that's more for food for her and the child but women's bodies have basically evolved to fight back harder in terms of they get hit by the same deaths that their, their metabolic rate may go down either more or faster the things that tend to not impact on male physiology will hit women harder and sooner so I mentioned, for example, the, the menstrual cycle dysfunction, right? That is a very common thing. You see it typically in leaner athletes, but it can happen at a range of, and it comes down to the body knowing kind of how many calories it has available. 
It doesn't have enough to support everything. It will shut down reproductive function, right? That's not required for life. So it'll save calories that way. Men's will do that eventually, but the, the point at which that happens occurs much earlier in women. Men can diet much, much, much harder. Much more important. What's that? Evolutionary women are much more important than men. So. Yeah, it, well, yes, and that's exactly it. And their bodies are basically made to spare body fat and spare fat loss because if they do that, they either can't support pregnancy, can't support childbirth, can't support weaning, can't ensure that the child lives to about five, which is when it has the greatest likelihood of survival. So there's all these underlying physiologies that came out of that, that in the modern world, unfortunately, makes fat loss more difficult. Yeah, just while we're on this topic, Lyle, because this is something that I'm really, really interested in, in terms of the whole weight maintenance and this pushback, mm-hmm. metabolic adaptation, it's called, isn't it? So the, the fight back to kind of regain the body fat that you lose when you diet and so things start to slow down a lot more like you'll start moving a lot less your body will want to preserve this energy calorie your hunger will go up wanting you to get more calories in for example if we could just kind of you could break down that best you can in layman's terms to the listeners in terms of talking about the reductions in bmr the reductions in non-exercise that would be a good place to look into okay so the total number of calories you burn during a day both total energy expenditure in a 24 hour span. There's four, four factors. One is resting metabolic rate. Those are just the calories. If you laid in bed all day, that's how many calories you burn just to support organ function and everything that goes on in your body. There's something called the thermic effect of food. That is the number of calories you burn in response to eating and digestion metabolism. It tends to be relatively small. It's about 10% of your total calorie intake thereabouts. Um, the thermic effect of activity, these are calories burned during formal exercise, right? Now we get into weird gray area based on the next one, but if you go to the gym, you walk on the treadmill, you do the elliptical or the stair climber lift, that's, that's exercise. And then there's something called non-exercise activity thermogenesis or NEAT. And you can think of that, that represents two things. One is all the calories you burn in non-formal activity. So taking the stairs. Uh, parking further away from the grocery store market so you have to walk further, gardening, uh, even chewing gum burns about 10 calories an hour, believe it or not, about 42 kilojoules. Yeah, that's right. But it also, gum has about 10 calories, so it's kind of a wash. So those are the four things. Now, resting metabolic rate is related to your body weight and how much lean body, lean body mass, muscle mass, organs, etc. That ex- Hormones play a little bit of a role. Uh, I would mention women's metabo- resting metabolic rate changes throughout the menstrual cycle. It's a little bit higher in the second half of the cycle. Three to 5%, it's only a couple hundred calories. Fortunately, women's appetite usually goes up and they have cravings. It's very easy to overeat that. But there is a small, women's are different throughout, men's are the same all month. There's a difference right there. It's not big, but it, it's there. So thermic effect of food, like I said, is fairly, uh, oh, sorry. So resting metabolic rate, lean body mass, thermic effect of food, Calorie intake, it's going to be smaller in women because they eat less, you know, compared to men. The thermic effect of activity can range from zero, right? If you do no zero formal exercise, you burn zero calories, to extremely high. Uh, Long duration cyclists, Tour de France cyclists, may be burning 6,000 calories a day, right? What is that? 24,000 some odd kilojoules, something like that. And so there's a huge range there. 
most people going to the gym for an hour are not burning nearly as many as they wish. It's, it's three, if you get three, 400 calories during a hard, that's a hard hour of exercise. And again, women by dint of being smaller will burn less than men. A 180 pound male will burn more calories in an hour of exercise than a 130 pound female or um, 75 kilos and 60 ish kilos. Um, and then NEAT also varies enormously. Some people are very, have very low levels of NEAT. And in, in Western societies, it tends to be much lower, right? Most of us don't have to go work in a field. We don't walk a lot. Some cities, I'm sure, we don't have a lot of household labor, right? Do it. If you have never hand-washed your clothes, it's it'll be exhausting, right? In the U.S., we hire someone to mow our lawns. All these things that would, would normally, so it tends in less well-developed countries, it's very hot because they don't have washing machines. They don't have washers and dryers for their clothing. So, so that can vary a lot too. So we add all those up and that's how many calories you burn in a day. Now, when you diet, every single one of those changes. And by that, I mean, they all go down. <laughs> so resting metabolic rate. If you're smaller, you will burn less calories at rest. Just that, that is the case, smaller. But there's, a, there's an additional component. There's additional drop above and beyond just the weight loss. It's called the adaptive component. Don't worry about it too hard. Just say, if normally your resting metabolic rate would go down by 100 because you lost a certain amount of weight, and it goes down by 150, that's the extra bit. Thermic effect of food doesn't change much with dieting except that you're eating less. And it's not that much, right? 1,800 calories is 180 calories from thermic effect. If you go to 1,500 calories, it's 150. It's 30 calories. It's just not that big of a deal. It's 120 kilojoules difference. Activity. One, a smaller body will burn less calories during activity, right? You're moving a body through space, running or riding a bike or whatever. You will burn less calories by being smaller. There's also a change in how your muscles use calories, that it goes down a little bit more than that. Um, and then NEAT, which like I said, can vary a lot. Typically people move around less because we're tired. And this is all, and some of this, it's not, most of it's not conscious. It's hormonal, it's signals that are being sent by your body to your brain that go, okay, this is not good because dieting is really just starving to death under, it's like controlled starvation. And, very, and the body doesn't know any better, just knows, okay, this is probably not good. Let's fight this. Your hunger goes up which is a separate issue. So all these things will go down. Um, and, and that has again been sort of parsed in, in mainstream media into nobody ever loses weight and keeps it off and your body fights back and there's no point. And that's untrue, right? That, that is taking this to, to the other extreme. Because when you look at a lot of these things, the impact is not huge, right? So resting metabolic rate, for example. When you're dieting, that, that extra component, that adaptive, com is, can be decently big. It might be 100 calories a day. But when you go into weight maintenance, it's maybe 50 calories a day, right? This is not a deal breaker. This is half a piece of fruit, right? This is, this is not what's causing you to regain body fat over time. When you're at maintenance and you're eating a little bit more, that thermic effect of eating goes up a little bit. But again, it's never that big. So it, it, we can just generally not worry about it. Exercise is a different issue, right? If you were doing a lot to begin with, if you still maintain a lower body weight, you are probably, you're going to be burning less calories. 
I, that adaptive component, I don't know if it really goes away, but we actually know that for most people, exercise is more important for weight maintenance for a number of reasons. Some of it is that it offsets those other factors, right? So if we know that your resting metabolic rate is 50 calories below where it should be, well, do 10 minutes of moderate exercise per day extra and you've covered that, right? You can now eat that extra little bit and not have to worry. And we find that, that that's really where exercise has its biggest role is for helping with weight maintenance for a number of reasons. But one of it is it lets you eat a little bit more while still without being in a calorie excess. I don't know if meat recovers, right? And meat will be lower, even if it's high, right? You move around a lot. If you're smaller, you'll burn less calories. There is an adaptation there. But some of it, when you're just not having your body send signals to your brain that goes, stop moving around so much to, to spare calories, some of that will, you know, when you're eating at maintenance again, some, at least some of that will go away. We can also consciously choose to increase that aspect of that meat part, right? We can choose, ah, there's an elevator and escalator, there's a set of stairs, choose the stairs. We can choose to park further away when we drive to the market. We can choose to walk for shorter air, you know, if you're in a city that allows it. I live in Texas. Texas is not a walking city. Everything is 45 minutes away, like you cannot really walk anywhere here. Other cities, just depends on how the city is set up. You know, in New York, in the US, very much a walking city. You know, I don't, I, 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 a lot of American cities, we came up around cars 200 years, you know, whenever a lot of older, I think, uh, cities in other countries weren't developed around cars because they were built however many hundreds or thousands of years ago. So the U S tends to be like, we just don't have walking cities outside of like the Northeastern part. So the neat aspect can be increased standing desks, walking desks at work, looking for ways to increase that. So there are all of these adaptations, and I'm not disagreeing that they can make things more difficult, but none of them are intractable. None of them guarantee that you're going to regain all, the, but that's the message being sent. I don't think it's true. Probably the bigger issue is hunger tends to go up. And most people who stay lean or lose body fat, or poor, yeah, they're a little hungry all the time. At the same time, Fat loss, maintenance, weight maintenance gets easier over time because we build habits, right? This is an important, and I'm sure you talk about this endlessly. There are lots of ways to lose fat rapidly that are terrible because they don't teach you how to eat. They don't teach you a sustainable approach. Ideally, any diet you follow should be based around whole foods, be based around foods that you're going to at least eat to some degree when you go into maintenance, right? You don't get to eat one way of the diet and then go back to the way you were eating. Those have to be gotten habits. Daily activity can become a habit. All of that helps to offset all those adaptations. Yeah, there's a big difference between people. And I think a lot of people go wrong with this when they hear somebody say, oh, I'm eating 1,200 calories and they don't take into consideration the differences between people and actually understand that there is a correlation between energy in and energy out usually. So if there is- Oh, yes of energy coming in that's going to have an effect on the energy out which you just broke down very well yes yes people tend to think yeah they think that these numbers don't change and they all do right and to a degree let to less of a degree like if you overeat right obviously a heavier body heavier body burns more calories but get, getting heavier to burn more calories is kind of defeating the purpose unless it's muscle some people when you overfeed them there's a portion of that that meat that's just unconscious People fidget, they stand up, they sit down, and that can really burn a tremendous number of calories. That's 
unconscious. But we've known that person, right? The guy, the, the person who's just fidgeting, their leg is bouncing all the time. They're burning actually a tremendous number of calories because they're doing it 12 hours a day. And some people, when you overfeed them, will do that. And most won't. And will. So, so yeah, these are, and it's the same thing, right? How do people set up diets? Okay, I'm going to eat 1,500 calories a day. That's such and such of a deficit. I should lose fat like this. But what they forget is that the amount of calories they were burning at the start of the diet starts to become gradually down. Rather than losing in a straight line, they'll lose and they'll eventually hit balance because now their body is burning what they're eating. And the only way to continue fat loss is to either increase activity or decrease your calories. And that sort of brings me to a very roundabout way. This is a big, big, big difference between uh, male and female dieters, right? Big males, right? 180 pound, 200 pound male, because he's big, he's burning a lot of calories at rest during activity, et cetera, et cetera. You'll hear these guys go, yeah, you know, I diet, I get to eat 2,400 calories a day. I'm never hungry. And then you, sorry, 180 to 200 is uh, 70 to 90 kilos. Uh, I got to remember to do the conversion. Whereas if you have a 60, sorry, a 50, uh, you know, 55 kilo woman or 60 kilo woman, she may be down on 1,500 calories, you know, 6,000 kilojoules a day. And that's just not a lot of food, right? But, but hunger is super complicated. I'm not going to get into it, but the physical filling of your stomach is part of it. And when you've only, when you've got, when you're a male and you've got, you know, 8,000 kilojoules to work with, you can eat a lot of food and go, I don't see what the difficulty is. And a smaller female who's on, you know, half that, it's just not a lot of food. And in, in the physique industry, in the fitness industry, you know, when women are dieting to the extremely low levels, they call it being on poverty calories. They may be doing an hour, you know, two hours of exercise a day, and they still are only eating, you know, 4,800 kilojoules. And they're still, like, it's, it's tough. Uh, and even that, so that leads me to another difference. And there was a study that's in the women's book, and I'll try to avoid citing too many of these, but this is just really interesting. There's always been a debate, do women truly lose less than men? And it depends on how you look at it. In absolute kilos, they do, but as a percentage of their starting body weight, they frequently don't, right? You can't compare a 60-kilo woman and a 90-kilo male on the same diet and go, well, he lost four kilos and she only lost two, because if she's half his weight to begin with, they both lost the same percentage, right? So, that's, so, so it depends on how you look at it. But another one said, okay, here's part of the problem. Usually when they do exercise studies for fat loss or diet studies, they go, okay, we're going to have both the women and the men do 45 minutes of exercise. Well, that 60 kilo woman will be burning significantly less calories than that 90 kilo guy. So 45 minutes of exercise is not the same for the two of them. He may burn however many, you know, 500 calories or 2,000 kilojoules or whatever, and she maybe burned 75% of that. So one set of researchers finally said, rather than doing time, let's have them burn the same number, amount of energy during exercise. We want them to burn whatever it was, 450 calories. Well, the men did it in an hour, and the women took an hour and 20 minutes at the same intensity. 
So when, when guys go, oh, yeah, I, you know, I eat 8,400 kilojoules, 2,400 calories, and I do 45 minutes of cardio, it's totally different. A woman couldn't eat that much to begin with, and that same 45 minutes of cardio is burning 75% as many calories. She's either going to have to work at a higher intensity or do more. Right. And you'll see that people be like, oh, women should never, you know, be doing 90, 90 minutes of aerobic activity is too much and it's bad for you. And it can be. Don't make a mistake. But for smaller women, it's either that or starve because they're only getting to eat a thousand calories, four thousand kilojoules. Right. They have to do more to offset being smaller. It's just the, it's just the reality of the world. And men don't have to think about like I said lighter men if you're you know a 65 kilo male you got to worry about this but by and large we're looking at much bigger differences in body weight so there's another there's another big difference yeah something I've heard you speak about before Lyle in the podcast and it's staying on the same in line with this metabolic adaptation that we've just been touching upon when you you spoke about leptin differences in yeah. and females which I found really really interesting yeah. Could you just kind of go over that and kind of just touch upon what leptin is? Because I know that's a big yes. question in all this kind of yes. metabolic adaptation, so, weight regain. Yeah. Sure. So, and I'll, I'll try to, this is one of those that I could go down the rabbit hole for an hour and get as complicated, and I'll try to avoid that. So, so for years, they kind of knew that the body adapted, but they didn't know why. And in 1994, they discovered this hormone called leptin that was being made predominantly by fat cells. And realize that up until that point, everyone just thought, pardon me, excuse me, that fat cells were just a storage space. They didn't do anything. Now we know that they're releasing dozens or more of hormones that are affecting the body. Leptin is one of them. Leptin tells your brain, well, it tells your brain two things. In the long term, it tells your brain how much body fat you have, right? It's basically going just like, this is where you're at. In the short term, by that I mean a few days, it's telling your body how much you're eating and specifically how many carbohydrates you're eating. And don't get too hung up on that. Basically, it's just a signal to your brain that goes, okay, this is where we are in terms of how much body fat we have and how many calories we are and aren't eating. And that tells your brain what it should do. Because if your body starts to sense, oh yeah, we're eating less, we're losing body fat, we need to start some of these adaptations to slow that down, right? So that's the basic gist of it. Now, women inherently produce about four times as much leptin as men. Some of that is because they carry, they have more total body fat. But there is, there does appear to be a, I think it's got to do with estrogen. It's been a lot of years since I looked into this, so I may get something small wrong, and I, I apologize for that. Um, but it is hormonal. So right there, you can see that there's probably some sort of a difference uh, that might be going on. And I'm not going to get too far into what, there's, there's some evidence, a woman's brain may respond differently, like the same drop in leptin may have less of an effect in a man than in a woman. Sort of, women's bodies fight back harder, this is one of the signals, that's kind of all we need to know. But so, to, so when you exercise, if you replace those calories, leptin shouldn't change, right? You're still at energy balance, right? You're still, but it's different. And there's a paper I cited in the women's book, and they, put, they took men and women, and they had them like exercise for seven straight days, but they had them eat enough to offset the exercise. So if they did 300 calories of exercise, they ate 300 calories more, 1,200 kilojoules. And at the seven-day mark, and they measured leptin at the beginning and at the end. Now, in the men, leptin didn't change. 
and the women had still went down. Even though they were still technically at maintenance, there was a change in their physiology that might very easily, because the drop in leptin not only adapts the metabolic system, but it also tends to drive hunger. It's one of its many roles. So even in response to exercise and energy balance, their women's bodies may still kind of drive a hunger signal, just in case, for the reasons we talked about before. Women's bodies have to maintain more body fat than men's for survival of themselves, the child, developing baby, et cetera, et cetera. So there are these differences. So not only does a woman's leptin hormone levels change in a different way, but her brain may respond to it differently. So there's all these kind of signals. And at least in some research, and realize this is really complicated. When some people exercise their app, they, they get hungrier and they eat more. And in a lot of studies, you'll read about, ah, oh, we had people exercise and they didn't lose weight. But when you look at the, the data, right, half of them lost a bunch of weight and some of them even gained weight. And some of this is because, well, some people go, oh, I exercise, you know, I get to have that, that, that fatty meal. But some of them just, their bodies go, whoa, we're exercising, we're in an energy deficit, we got to eat more. And they tend to very easily. It's different when you control calories, you don't see that as much. But there's also just a huge variation. And I think what you'll find is that on average, women's bodies are more likely to increase hunger in response to exercise than men's are. Yeah, it's really interesting you just mentioned that point, And it's something that I kind of say quite often. And it was good that you've, you've said that there's maybe some studies on that. Is a lot of people, and we'll get into this in a minute, Lau, because it would be good upon the mistakes that women make and yes. what I find with a lot of women that I've trained and a lot of women that I've met is that they'll thrash themselves into the ground in the gym and they'll just literally go all out for like two hours non-stop non-stop yes. and then have the mentality of oh it's okay I've burnt 2,000 calories which you said before is probably not true yes overestimate how many calories they've expended and then underestimate how much they've actually then eaten. Yep, absolutely. They can end up putting on the weight because they've just kept back the calories due to the vigorousness of the training that they've done. Right, and that's even assuming that like their, their actual biological hunger, that's just this, this justification. And you see this, and I, I want to make it clear that in many cases we'll be talking about, oh, you know, this is what women do. A lot of it is because this is what women are told to do. A lot of the information, I mean, there's a lot of bad information for men, but in men, it has to be really terrible to not work. And in women, because the way their systems are wired, the bad information for women is worse for them. So a lot of what women do, like, I'm not, don't, I don't think you would say this. It's not like, oh gosh, you know, you're so dumb because you do this. And then it's not that. This is what you've been told is the right way to do it. And frequently you're being told this by someone that it did work for, for some reason, because in this industry, as long as you're in shape, you can tell people anything and they'll think it works. And there's just a lot of garbage information out there that women are fed in terms of, oh, you burned a thousand calories in that aerobics class. No, you didn't. It was more like 300. <laughs> you know, oh, you'll burn, you know, adding muscle mass will raise your metabolic rate. Okay. Adding half a kilo of muscle will increase your calorie expenditure by six calories a day. And women don't eat. And like a woman might work hard for six months to gain, what, a kilo and a half of muscle, two kilos if they're lucky. At best, you raise your metabolism by 25 calories a day. It's nothing. Yeah. 
right? Even if a woman, even if a woman were to gain a full 10 kilos of muscle, like that's a career goal. She might raise her metabolic rate by 120 calories a day, which fine. It adds up, but that's a big piece of fruit. Right? That's a big apple. It just, it's not significant, but that's, that's the information that they get in the mass media. And they're, what are women typically told? Starve yourself, eat as little as possible, do as much cardio as you can. If they do weights at all, and this is changing, but if you do weights, like don't lift too much because you might get bulky, right? There's a famous trainer, I will not name, who has said women should never lift more than a kilo and a half because they'll get bulky. <laughs> to which I say, if women have a child, if they're carrying dishes or doing, carrying almost anything in around the house, it weighs more than that. And somehow they don't get bulky. It's just nonsense. There's so much gibberish information out there that it's, it's, it's hard to not see why, why women have been misled. And it's through no fault of their own, but that's why we're here. So, right. The, and the other part of it is they thrash themselves and then justify being able to eat a lot. And what they don't realize is those calories you burned in the gym, well, you're exhausted later in the day. So rather than doing your normal non-exercise activity that you might have done, you go lay on the couch. So yeah, you killed yourself to burn, let's, let's be generous. You killed yourself to burn 900 calories. You're now burning 300 less later in the day because you're tired and you are justifying that you get to eat a huge meal that you think is only 1,000 calories that's probably 1,500 and you wonder why nothing's working. So, and what you find is that often being more moderate in the gym has less of an impact on activity later. And as you get fitter, it helps. But if you're killing yourself in the gym, and, it's, and worse when you're dieting, right, you're just exhausted. Like the diet is bad enough. And then if you're killing yourself at the gym, all you do is you go home and lay on the couch all day and you burn very few calories. So it ends up offsetting that. So yeah, so the, this is all you're right, exactly how people approach it. Yeah, and I think with the when we've just spoke about the the hard time women have anyway physiologically when it comes to dieting, if they do make the mistake of what we're speaking about here, thrashing themselves as well in the gym, they're getting that kind of double whammy effect on themselves. Yes. Like they might be unintentionally causing more harm than good, right? Yeah, it, yes, it ends up just compounding it, and then something I see a lot of people do, and and again. I, you see this in males. I don't want anybody to ever hear that like all women do this and all men do this. There's a lot of bad information. A lot of people do things badly. I'm talking in averages, right? So we know, for example, right? Well, I'll come back to that. Like, well, we know that when men want, when men exercise, they lift weights. Men don't generally like doing the cardio deck. When women want to exercise, they go to the cardio deck on average. Again, it's changing. Social media has done some good things. But that's been the traditional approach. Cardio deck, cardio is for women and weight training is for men. Never shall the twain meet. Um, so yeah, so they, they absolutely, and they do the, but so let me back up. There's another practical aspect that women face that men don't. Women's body weight tends to vary throughout the cycle. Again, it depends on the woman and it can vary significantly. Like week one, which is right after menstruation starts, is typically the lowest. Goes up a little bit in week two for ovulation. And, and it can vary, right? It could be kilo, kilo and a half, just depends on the woman. Typically goes back down in week three. And then that last week, which is where in the US we call it premenstrual syndrome. I think overseas they more more commonly premenstrual tension, 
Um, that final week is typically when body weight can go up very significantly. It can be up to two and a half, even three kilos. Women have all experienced this if they're going to, right? Their clothes fit, they feel puffy, their ankles may be swollen. This is significant. But what it makes, the difficulty is that it makes it very hard for women to track their progress, right? Because again, dudes are the same every week. I can go week one, I was this, and week two, I was this, and week three, and I can look at them week to week to week. A woman's weight may already be going up, down, up, down, up, down, up, down every week. If they're trying to compare their body weight from week one to week two, they're going to think not, even if they're on a program that's correct, they're going to think it's not working. Because even if they lost, say, let's say they really, they lost half a kilo from week one to week two, their body weight's up a kilo and a half because of water, it'll look like they've gained. And then in week three, it'll go back down. And then in week four, oh my God, I've been doing everything right for the last three weeks. And my body weight's up two kilos. My trainer doesn't know what he's doing. I quit because why would I, right? So women in a practical sense end up having to compare. You got to compare week one to week one. Week two, like you can only compare the same week of each month. Or the results just become, you can't, it, it will drive you crazy trying to do that if you're using the scale. So, but what, what happens there, kind of bring it back to your question. So dieters, they'll go in and women will, ah, I'm going to eat as little as possible. I'm going to exercise as hard as I can or as much as I can with lots of just low intensity aerobic activity. Separate issue I do want to touch on. Number one, that can have its own set of problems. If women want to get their body to fight back as quickly as possible and as hard as possible, eat as little as you can and do as much activity as you can right from the get-go. Your body will, within five days, hormonal changes will occur that show that your body is starting. Thyroid hormone goes down, cortisol goes up, all these bad hormonal things. As little as five days if women do it like that. So don't do it like that, right? Not that there aren't extreme times for extreme approaches, right? You mentioned my rapid fat loss. It is an extreme diet, but it's low calories without a lot of exercise, right? You can do one or the other. You can do a lot of exercise and keep calories higher. You can do low calories, not, but when you do both, things go crazy. But one of the things that happens when you do that is frequently the body will just start to retain water in general. Not even, this is outside the menstrual cycle stuff. And it's just hormonal and not going to get into the details, just it happens, right? So now, and this happens to guys too, right? So you're just, you're just killing yourself. You're just killing yourself. And it's been three weeks and nothing's moved. Your body weight hasn't changed. Nothing's dropped. What's going on? And it's because usually water retention. Now, it usually doesn't last more than about three weeks. Although what do people do, right? They're like, you know what? I'm working this hard for nothing forget it. And they'll take a couple days off of exercise and they'll eat a little bit more and they'll wake up and be two and a half kilos lighter because their body lost the water or they'll wait it out. And overnight they'll drop the same two and a half kilos, right? Obviously you didn't lose that much overnight. It's your body. But women do that, add to that the menstrual cycle. But what I see people doing is one of two things happens. Either their body weight stalls and they go, screw this, or they go, I've got to work even harder. So they cut calories more, they increase their activity, or they do both, and they get into this horrible cycle where too much too soon cause water retention, they do more, 
more water retention, more, or they start binging. That's the other thing that happens. Suddenly, when they're trying to eat as few calories as possible, and they'll do it for a couple of days, and then they'll just lose, lose it completely. And I'm sure you've done this. As trainers, as coaches, we go, okay, what I need you to do is eat more and exercise less. And they go, how can that work? Mm-hmm. You go, well, what you're doing now isn't working. Will you at least try it my way? And they do, and suddenly, boom, things start moving again. So there are all, all these considerations. And I, I'd have to look. I don't know that women's bodies are, are more prone to that. But by the time you had menstrual cycle dynamics and just what women are told to do by the general media, it can set up a really, really damaging um, situation. And like I said, in that, by that point, you can cause menstrual cycle dysfunction in the short term. That can cause bone, den- bone loss in the long term, which is extremely detrimental, like stuff that men just don't experience. Men can just get away with this stuff. And for women, it becomes extremely, extremely damaging. Yeah, it's understanding the water retentions. And it's great that you mentioned this because I definitely wanted to jump into and ask you mm-hmm. about weight fluctuations. This is something I'm, I'm sure you can testify yourself. I've had it with probably every single female client that I've ever ever worked with where they lose their mind a little bit when it comes to stepping on the scales and this oh, yeah. potential. Obviously, we've got to look into sometimes it could be poor dietary adherence to the caloric deficit, but a yes. lot of the time as well, if they are saying they are adherent to what we've given, a lot of it is water retention that can potentially mask the fat loss. Sure. Where they so much soldiers, as yep. much tell them this, they still seem to not kind of get it or even listen and still freak out, especially if they are a very stressful person. As, as yes, agreed. Because um, I mean, one thing people don't realize is even under the best circumstances, where you're doing everything perfectly, body weight still tends to go up and down a little bit every day. Right? Differences in hydration, how much you drank, differences in food. Like people don't realize that. You can have, depending on how big you are, you can have anywhere from like a kilo to maybe two and a half to three kilos of food moving from one end to the other, right? And eh, I'm not going to give that example because it's gross. We're just moving on. But that alone, uh, I've known powerlifters who need to make weight and stuff, and you can check this. Weigh, go, weigh again. You'll see what an impact it has. That's why a lot of these diets that are like, ah, you know, fasting or enemas, like they're clearing that out. Oh my God, I lost three kilos overnight. Sure, you cleared out the undigested food. So body weight already does that. Women have the additional menstrual cycle. And if you were to plot it every so often, the numbers would look random. It'll be up by a kilo, down by a kilo and a half, up by three kilos. Now there's a couple ways around that. One, just don't get on the scale. It can drive people, it can drive some people nuts. I've known people that are experienced athletes in the physique sports, bodybuilding and fitness and figure. They should know better. The scale still drives them crazy, right? They in premise know better and it's still, the scale can drive you nuts. Now, if you're going to use it, you should at least use it properly, right? And the big push right now is actually to weigh daily which seems contradictory, like, oh my God, if the scale drives me crazy, it'll drive me crazy every day. And it can, and if you're that person, just don't. Use other, use the way your clothes are fitting, use whatever, pictures, tape measure. But what you do is you weigh every day, and then you take a seven-day average, right? You take what's called a seven-day rolling average. What that means, you've got your seven, 
And then when you get the next day, you drop out day one. So you've got seven the next day. And, and there are apps that do, will do this. There are even scales that will do it now. And what happens is that that evens out all those little daily fluctuations. And what you'll see, right, is like here's, I hope people can see this, like here's a line, right? That might be your body weight. And each individual day might be above that or below that or above that or below that. And you look at the trends. If it's trending downwards, you are losing weight over time. If it's trending upwards, you're gaining. And if it's staying flat, you're in maintenance. Women can't do this week to week because what they'll see is their average on week one might be this, and their average on week two will be this because of the water retention. Hmm. But if they compared week one to week one of the next cycle, it, they should be able to see, like I said, you have to use comparative values. So then, so then we've got water retention, hydrate. Some people are more stressed than others. And you find that they're, this hormone cortisol, which is the one we tend to focus on, which can cause water retention, it's already like 10% higher than them than in everybody else. Hmm. And I find they tend to have a certain personality type. And again, this isn't trying to be judgmental or critical, it just it is, that they get very stressed over the smallest thing, they stay stressed, right? Like some of us, you know, we're in a bank line, it's going slow, and you're just like, I've got somewhere to be, like what's the problem? And some people, they'll just get over it. They'll finally get to the bank, they'll go on one of their days and be like, cool. And other people, hours later, just like, I cannot believe that I got stuck. And those people are just, they are in this constant stress storm. And I found in general that they tend to be drawn to those very extreme diets, very extreme cardio types of excessive exercise. When it doesn't work, they go down that rabbit hole of must work harder, must work harder, and what you need them to do is relax. Mm-hmm. And that's very, 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 very difficult to get them to do because it's just not psychological. You can get to do it and they see the, the, that it works. That starts to send the message. But man, getting them to do it that first time that can be just fighting and losing. You can explain this to them till you're just blue in the face and you're arguing against just an inherent belief system. Again, some of which is just taught to them by the absolute garbage that's, that's written about this stuff, which is oh so terrible. Yeah, I've, I've come across that myself many a times and it's, it's really interesting because as much as this water retention is playing a massive part. And like I said before, as long as the caloric intake and all that sorted out, because obviously we're talking about that, let's say everything's on point. Yeah. Water retention is basically, the it's masking the fat loss. Therefore, they're feeling they need to do more and more and more. Yep. They're still getting, they still have this same stressful lifestyle or same reactions yep. to these problems. Like you said before, they're doing more, they're doing more, but the water retention's going up and up and up. And before you it's, know it, you're fighting a losing battle in terms of... Yep. I, I had I, one of my favorite stories. I had a client years ago who did this, and she started her program, and she jumped into like two hours of aerobic exercise per day. She claimed she was only eating 400 calories. In hindsight, that probably wasn't true, but she nothing. And I told her, look, I didn't know much, but I knew a little. And I told her, look, this doesn't work. I need you to exercise less and eat more food. And she goes, that can't possibly work. And fought and fought and fought for weeks. Then she went on vacation. She went on a cruise or something. What do you do when you're on vacation? You eat more and exercise less. She came back and she'd lost two kilos. And I said, see, see? And she went right back to being crazy again. <laughs> because it's so hardwired into these folks' personality. 
It's very, very difficult to get them to, to not do that. Once you can, once you get them started, it starts to sink in, but it's very, 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 they want to go all out at the gym every day with no rest. And you saw it years ago or once when interval training got really popular, everyone's like doing intervals six days a week. Man, I'm really tired and my knees hurt. Well, I can't imagine why that would be the case, right? You can only do so much hard work. You can only, you know, and there's other strategies that I recommend in, in the women's book, bringing calories back to maintenance every so often, taking diet. There's, there's ways around this that we won't have time to get into. Those are also very different because what's the mentality? The less you eat, the faster you'll lose. Mm -hmm. And it's frequently, I won't say it's the opposite, but you get to a point that the harder you try, the worse your results are over time, or they're not proportional to the work. Like, okay, great. You cut your calories by 50 more percent so you can lose fat 10% faster. Well, that's not efficient. If you're on a time frame, that's different. You got a reunion, a wedding, or whatever. But for most people, it's not a race. And doing it more moderately, whether moderate exercise or whatever, tends to be more effective in the long term because and, and you have you probably have this client too right you get the women or the men too that try to eat as little as they can survive and their target is let's say it's 800 calories a day and every other day they're binging and eating 2000 because they're hungry right it happens if you get them and then they then you get them to target say 1200 calories a day and their mind says but how can that be better but then they end up not binging every other day so now their average over the week, rather than being 800 one day and 2,000 the next, is 1,200 the whole week or whatever it is. And suddenly they're able to actually adhere to their diet, which also means they're not feeling the tremendous guilt of not having been strong enough, right? That's the other big one. It's like, ah, you lacked willpower. No, some programs are just unsustainable and, there's, and no human being can do this. But that's another lesson that's taught by bad dieting literature. So that's another potential benefit of doing, or they're like, oh, I'm gonna, gonna do two hours of aerobics every day, and they do it for two or three days and either get hurt, they're too sore, they're exhausted all the time, and then they take the next four days off. Whereas if you had them do 45 minutes daily, they would probably sustain that. So frequently doing more is worse than doing, for, and for all the other reasons we talked about. Like this is just getting into behavioral stuff and adherence, because consistency and adherence will be superior in the long term to any of this other extreme stuff. Again, there are short-term reasons you might do it that way, but big picture. Yeah, and it's setting people up, like you mentioned in your rapid fat loss book, which I, I really like. It's, yeah. it's like you said, there's an event coming on, we'll do it rapid, because we, we, we all know that people do want things fast these days, but it's good, sure. and they'll still do it anyway, regardless. Well, yeah, yeah. Of they'll, <laughs> do they'll do it. So we need to give them something that is, like you say in your book, it's for a short period of time. However, we're going to take into consideration these adaptations that do occur and we're yep. going to give you a smart strategy to go back to maintenance very quickly and resource yep. these adaptations, but at the same time, not smash you with loads of exercise as well. And yes. like, it's just one or the other. Something that I wanted to touch upon massively with you. We've obviously touched upon menstrual cycle briefly throughout this it's popped up quite a few times but i know a lot of my listeners will want to know more about this you could just break down as best way you can in layman's terms the menstrual cycle how it works in relation okay. to how can people have more specific nutrition nutrition yeah. 
pathways around the menstrual cycle to help with these cravings, these moods, yeah. lack of motivation to train. What recommendations would you would you do with your, your clients or people you've worked with? Okay, I do want to get to that. Before I do, I want to make one other quick diversion that kind of ties into like the differences in how men and women traditionally diet. Yeah. Typically, when a man wants to lose fat, and this actually gets into some of the menstrual cycle stuff, women's and men's bodies use carbohydrates, proteins, and fat somewhat differently. Yeah. Right? There's an oddity when women do low-intensity aerobic exercise, they actually burn more fat than men, which seems very contradictory. Now, number one, you don't burn a lot of cal- you don't burn a lot of fat in the big picture anyway. But what you see is that women burn fat during exercise and then burn carbohydrates the rest of the time. Whereas men burn carbohydrates during exercise and burn more fat the rest of the day. Now, in the big picture, what's more important? What you burn during that hour or the other 23? And it's the other 23. So women's bodies go from what kind of sw- they also tend to burn more fat that's in the muscle rather than, than um, in body fat. And women's bodies also tends to like spare carbohydrate in the muscle called glycogen, right? Their bodies are meant to spare fat and carbohydrate, right? Through all these adaptations, whereas men's are not. And what you then see, like what's the traditional approach to fat loss for women? I'm going to do a lot of low intensity cardio, which A is not burning a ton of calories. B is not burning a lot of fat because the calorie expenditure isn't that high. But then they eat an extremely typically high carb, low protein, low fat diet. That's been the traditional, or they eat high carbs too much, but protein tends to be low. Why? Well, protein is how you build muscle. I don't want to get bulky. Carbs are good for you. I want to eat all the carbs. Fat is bad because fat makes you fat. And you see these really imbalanced diets. Now, what that ends up doing, right? So women are burning a little bit of fat during the aerobic exercise. They're eating and they're burning carbs the rest of the day, but they're eating a lot of carbs. So they're just like burning what they're eating. Mm. And basically their, their body is not particularly efficient at losing, at using fat for fuel is what ends up happening. Now, when men want to lose fat, what do they do? They lift weights and eat protein and fat. Men love low carb diets. Mm. What I get to eat steak and bacon. Oh Yeah. Right, and there's bio, there's biology to this. Men tend to prefer the taste of protein and fat. Women tend to be more carbs and fat. A lot of women don't have a taste for protein. Get that? But what men are doing by lifting weights, they're because weightlifting can only use carbohydrate in the muscle for fuel. By not eating a lot of carbs, they end up reducing their overall muscle carbohydrate stores. That increases the use of fat for fuel during the day. So, in a very real way, when women because what do you see with, well, what do women do? They, they've done the cardio grind. I did two hours of aerobics a day. I ate the standard diet and got nowhere. And then they find weight training, right? For whatever reason. And they go, they throw themselves into the weight room. And part of weight room culture is higher protein, moderated carbs. And they will see more results in three months than they saw in two years. It's a magic trick. Like, it's just, it's kind of mind-blowing. Because they're not getting all those adaptations to too much cardio, and they usually are eating more, they're not getting all those adaptations to starving themselves. And finally getting enough protein, moderating carbs, basically they're, and I hate this term, they're turning themselves into fat burning machines with those. And other work shows that like when women do interval training, high intensity intervals, same thing. That can only use carbohydrate in the muscle. Yeah. Deplete muscle glycogen, they use more fat for fuel, it tends to be more effective for women than even for men. 
So that brings us into the menstrual cycle. But basically, when women find that balance where they get sufficient dietary protein, are doing some form of high-intensity activity, whether it's intervals, weight training, or both, some amount of, I mean, not saying low-intensity is bad. It can't be all that you do for the most part. They tend to get better results. Basically, the stuff that men tend to be both intuitively drawn to, and again, what is men's media on this? All the pro, male bodybuilders eat all the protein and just lift your butt off. Women need to adopt more of those habits. Okay, so the menstrual cycle. Try to break it down quickly. On average, it's a 28-day cycle. Most women's, it can vary 24 to 32 days, right? Split in half. The middle point is ovulation, right? Day one is the first day of menstruation. That's just what's taken as day one. Day 14 is when the egg is released, and then day 28 is the end of that premenstrual tension week. Okay, so first half is called the follicular phase. This is when the follicle, which contains the egg, is developing under hormonal effects. It is released at ovulation. It forms something called the corpus luteum. Second half of the cycle is called the luteal phase, right? Estrogen, one of the primary reproductive hormones, tends to be dominant in the follicular phase and tends to be less, have less of an effect in the luteal phase. Progesterone, the other hormone, very low in the follicular phase, tends to be dominant in the luteal phase. All right, so that's the overall scheme. That's probably the fastest I've ever described it. <laughs> uh, believe it, seriously, this one, I mean, I spent in, a detailed chapter all on all of this and you can go listeners can go online go to the wikipedia page on they'll have the graphic of all the different changes but that that's cut so what you see is that women's physiology is distinctly different in the first half of the cycle in the second half it changes a little bit between week one and two and week three and four but broad big picture in the first half of the cycle women tend to have their appetite most well controlled they tend to be insulin sensitive, which means that their body, their muscles and tissues are responsive to, are very sensitive to hormone insulin. They burn more carbohydrates for fuel. Blood sugar is very stable. Um, the appetite tends to be well controlled. Their estrogen has benefits. It's anti-inflammatory. Uh, women tend to not get sore as much as men, and some of that is estrogen, and that tends to be predominant in the first half of the cycle. So in the big picture, since women are burning more carbs for fuel, and they're insulin sensitive, they would want their carbohydrates to be a little bit higher and their fats a little bit lower. Now, I'm not talking enormous differences, right? And in the book, I get into all kinds of calculations you can do. The difference is like 10 or 15% either. Like, I'm not talking about humongous differences between the four weeks. Protein, I tend to set fairly statically, right? I don't like to really see that change too much. Um, mainly, we're manipulating carbs and fats. But that will tend to kind of give her the best the best to match that physiology, you know, moderate protein. And depending on, you know, we're talking for women, relatively lean woman, 1.6 to 1.8 grams per kilo is plenty. Um, now women will look at that and go, oh my God, that's so much protein. Like it'll be 120 grams of protein. And you're like, okay, Greek yogurt is what, 13 to 15 grams. Um, can of tuna fish, at least in the U.S., is about 32 grams of protein. You know about a palm's worth of chicken or beef, 30 grams of protein, right? If you do that four times a day, it's not that hard to do. So carbs may be up a little bit, fat's a little bit lower. Now, as we go into the luteal phase, the second half, progesterone takes over. One, a woman becomes more insulin resistant, right? Meaning that her body doesn't respond as well. And what that means, women will often find that their blood sugar is less stable, and that can drive hunger. 
right? Women will eat carbs, their blood sugar will crash, and they'll find themselves at the candy machine or the snack vendor or whatever it is. Um, muscle tends not, you know, estrogen's effects are blocked. It's beneficial effects on muscle, so you tend to not get quite as good of a, like, a response to exercise resistance training. It's still there. It's just it's tamped down a little bit. Um, the big one relevant to this is, as I mentioned, metabolic rate goes up a little bit in that second half of the cycle. It's a couple hundred calories, maybe 300, but so does hunger and food cravings. And food intake may go up by 300 to 500, which easily overwhelms that. Um, sort of an interesting side note, right? We've always sort of thought that, ah, people, women crave chocolate, especially in the US. Um, what you actually find is that women crave either sweet or savory foods. And in Spain, uh, craving foods, typically chicken. So there's a big teaching aspect of it. Basically, when little girls start to hit that, what their mothers tell them will make it better is probably what they will crave. So there's, there is a cultural aspect of this. But the cravings exist. So now, in a fat loss perspective, we can look at that little boost in metabolic rate in one of two ways. On the one hand, we could go, look, if you can maintain your, your calorie intake, you'll burn a little more fat. That's not much, right? 200 calories over a week and a half, it's another half pound of fat. I mean, that's great. For a smaller woman, that's a lot. That's assuming they can keep their appetite under control. You can also look at it as, ah, since I'm going to have these cravings anyway, since I've got this little extra wiggle room, maybe I should allow myself a little bit of a treat when I feel the need for it. And papers, I actually have a paper that I, the women should love me for this. And it basically talks about dark chocolate as medicine for women during this part of their cycle. I'm like, yes, I am giving you medical permission to have some dark chocolate because I'm, I'm a giver that way, right? Like I love this, just the title of the paper. But that would be another way to approach it. Going, look, if I'm going to be hungry anyway, rather than try to deprive myself and end up binging, well, I'll just allow myself. Now, little is the key word here, right? It's very easy to eat a ton of chocolate very, very quickly, right? I'm not talking eat, you know, a giant bar. I'm talking about, ah, I really want to have a little treat. Go get one of those, what is it, Garardi? Garaldi, those little square dark chocolate thingies we get them in the U.S. Like, whatever. If you want to have those a couple times, a few times, you can fit it in. Um... Other, sorry, more globally, I got off topic, right? Because women are insulin resistant, they'll be a little better with moderating their carbs, bring them down a little bit, and bring their dietary fats up a little bit. Again, I'm not talking about much. They might increase their fat intake by 10 or 20 grams per day, right? We're talking about an extra tablespoon of salad dressing or oil or whatever. I'm not talking about these vast differences, but that will tend to keep blood sugar more stable. Fruit tends to help a little bit. That will help, again, keep you away from the snack vendor when your blood sugar and energy levels crash, which can also be related to mood. And I cited a paper in that one chapter, and we can probably wrap up there, because this hasn't really been considered ever, right? And finally, a paper looked at this, and they said, okay, we're going to compare a diet and exercise program based around the menstrual cycle to just the standard government guidelines. I want to say it was in Sweden, but don't swear me to that. I know it wasn't in the U.S. So the standard diet was 15% protein and 16% carbs and like your standard government guidelines. And the menstrual cycle-based diet was actually exactly what I just described. 
It was basically higher carbs and lower fats during the first couple of weeks. And they messed with exercise programs a little bit, and that depends on different stuff. And then the second half, they brought carbs down. They increased fats a little bit, but they allowed them to have, you know, a piece of dark chocolate if they wanted it as a treat. And what they found was that adherence was better. They found that in the women who were adherent, weight and fat, lo weight and fat loss was superior. Because of course it was, right? Because now, rather than trying to fit a women's menstrual cycle into generic guidelines, we are fitting the diet guidelines into the biological changes going on in a women's body. Woman's body. If you know you're going to be hungrier, either eat in such a way to blunt hunger or you allow yourself the occasional treat because that way you won't binge. When you're more insulin sensitive, eat a little bit more carbs. When you're not, eat a little bit more fats. Dietary fats also help control hunger. They keep food in the stomach longer. There's a bunch of different reasons. But by doing that, they were no longer trying to fit a woman, you know, the, the proverbial square peg into a round hole, making a woman fit into generic guidelines. They made the square hole and figured out how to fit women's, build the diet around that. Yeah, that massively makes a lot of sense, uh, I think. So in the first half of the menstrual cycle, you're mentioning about women can tolerate um, more carbohydrates and things yep. like that. Would, would it be fair to say that you would, up the intake of carbohydrates then, and that could potentially offset some of the cravings that come into the, uh, the luteal phase of the... Uh, like said, the, the cravings in the luteal phase are typically like for carbs and you know chocolate and savory stuff, and I don't know that carbs really are gonna necessarily help. But I mean, in the luteal phase, raising carbs, I don't think it's gonna help with the hunger so much. I, I think, especially with the insulin resistance going on, um, I think what I had in the book was, you know, reduce your starchy carbohydrates. See, again, we're not talking about much. I'm not a serving, you know, either direction. 10, 15 calories of fats is 150 calories. It's like 40 grams of carbs. It's not, again, not like it's enormous differences. And, and for many women, that's probably a little more headache than they want to go to. One of the things you really find, going back to that weight training, pro, is by the time women have gotten into the weight room and are pushing themselves a little bit, to, you know, to get those benefits and have increased their protein. Carbs and like, if they're eating moderate amounts of fats, and by that I mean it can be, you know, it might be a gram per kilo per day, or even a little bit less than that, right? So for a 60 kilo woman, 60 grams of fat. And I want to go, oh my God, that's so much fat, right? I've been eating 10 grams a day and like, right, and you're hungry all the time and you're miserable because you don't get to eat anything that tastes good. That's a very moderate fat diet right? That's 15 grams across four meals. That's like a tablespoon of peanut butter has that a tablespoon of like any pure oil, olive oil or almond oil or anything like that. It's not a tremendous amount of fat, especially when most people in the modern world eat way more than that. So by the time they do that, by the time proteins at 1.8 grams per kilo and fats at one gram per kilo, carbs end up being at maybe two and a half to three grams per kilo. Like they're already pretty moderate. Because unless a woman is just is a, a marathon runner or a, a road cyclist and is doing four hours of exercise a day and has an energy expenditure of, you know, 3,000 calories, they just don't have that many calories to work with. And when you math it out, they end up at moderate, you know, decent, moderate protein, moderate fats, moderate carbs. You might not, from the average woman, you might not have to mess around with this that much between the first two. It may be just more headache than you want to go through initially. Because I think in this study, protein is not generally as high in these studies as I tend to set it. Um, 
but we know that protein blunts hunger the best and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So honestly, once they get a pretty good baseline diet of moderate, 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 the differences between phases are so small that they're probably not worth the headache for most women. Um, the big difference being that if you want to allow yourself, you know, a little bit of a treat during the luteal phase and you've got a couple hundred calories to work with, do it. It will save you a lot of mental stress. It will keep you, you know, better to eat the piece now than the bag tomorrow. Yeah, um, I think, I think um, just before we go, Lyle, um, in terms of when we spoke about before all this adaptation, and I think I've heard you speak about it before in a podcast, and the menstrual cycle, which we just spoke about, and we, sp- yep. we, just, we won't go too much into detail, because uh, I definitely yep. will recommend my listeners go and get your books. Yep. Um, yes. The refeed diet breaks, that's where it can kind of come in quite nicely in terms of yep. the menstrual cycle, especially for females, I think you've mentioned. So oh, yeah. Just to kind of speak about briefly before we wrap it up to sure. how people could structure their nutrition for these diet breaks that can coincide with their menstrual cycle, if that makes make life easier. That's right. So the the basic idea of what he's bringing up, there's strategies. So, so like we talked about when you are in a calorie deficit, your body senses that and your body adapts. But by the same token, if you bring your calories back to maintenance, even your current maintenance, it will go, okay, we've got enough food. And over some amount of time, it will tend to de-adapt. Those adaptations will go away. So acutely, we talk about doing refeeds or bringing calories to maintenance, right? So you diet for three or four days, and then you bring your calories to maintenance for one, possibly two days. It can get into very complicated patterns. I'm just going to talk general principles. And what that hopefully does is it bring hormones back up to normal. Your brain goes, okay, we got food. Let's kind of relax on the adaptations. And like I said, all this is in the book. It gets, can get super complicated. Those are not, those don't work for everybody. Some people find that if they have that really high calorie day, they either overeat on the day. It may throw them off the diet. That's a very individual thing. Um, but there's another thing called the full diet break. And what that is, is a phase anywhere from, I prefer two weeks. Some people will go only seven days. Usually that's if somebody's kind of on a, an athlete who has to be in shape by a certain day. For most people, I think two weeks is better. And this is a, a phase where you deliberately choose to go off your diet. Now, when I say go off your diet, I do not mean go eat the world. I mean you're deliberately moving to maintenance. You are maintaining parts of your exercise program. You're maintaining most of what you've been eating. You're just allowing yourself to eat more. And what research has shown is that one, when people do this plan, in a planned fashion, right? What do most people do? We're dieting, we're dieting. We fall off the diet, we feel terrible, and we never go back. When you do it as part of a planned program, it's a very different psychology. This is part of the plan. Now, people will go, but that'll just slow my results. Well, in the short term, but in the long term, it'll make them better. And research has also shown that not only does this normalize your hormones and reverse the adaptations, it tends to make fat loss more efficient, which I realize is very contradictory to what everyone's been told. But this is what the research clearly shows. Now, there's a balance, right? You could technically diet for two weeks and eat at maintenance for two weeks, right? Diet during the follicular phase when hunger is easy. Eat more when you're hungrier. That will work, but it will make your diet take a very long time because you're only effectively dieting two weeks out of every four. 
in general, I like to program diet breaks based on sort of initial body fat percentage. For very lean athletes whose bodies are fighting back much harder, they might need one every two weeks. For someone who is carrying uh, much more body fat, they might only need one every 12 weeks in a physiological sense. Now, they may benefit from it psychologically if they feel like going to maintenance, you know, it also allows them to practice weight maintenance, right? Cause they'll make mistakes and we all make mistakes and you learn how to do it for yourself so that when you, you hit your goal, you know how to maintain already. But what, what you're getting at is, well, two things. One, and I think I'm all, the first person who's ever even come across this research or mentioned it. A question that nobody thinks to ask, when should a woman start her diet? Right? A man can start any day. We're all this, we're the same every day of the week, of the year of the month. For women, their hunger will be best controlled in the first two weeks. That's the best time to start a diet. Right? Trying to start a diet when you've already got cravings and aren't feeling good, not really setting yourself up for success. I'm not saying it can't be done. I'm saying that from the standpoint of putting yourself in the best situation to succeed, that's the worst time to do it. So wait till after, you know, you, like I said, day one is the first day of menstruation. Those next two weeks are going to be the easiest time for you to diet because hunger is best controlled. So you do that, right? You'll go into the, the first luteal phase and it won't be as much fun. You can adjust, you know, eat a little bit more if it helps you with cravings. But at some point when you decide to take that diet break, by the same token, take the diet break, which again, we'll assume is two weeks, during the luteal phase, right? That's when your hunger's up anyway. That's when all this is going on. You might as well bring calories to maintenance at a time when you'd want to be eating more and your metabolic rate's up. So you'll help to offset those adaptations, and that allows you to restart your diet during the phase when you're most likely to be able to continue it. Now, this won't always work, right? Obviously, if you're a personal trainer and you have a client come in and she says, I want to start my program, and she's in day 16 of her cycle, you're probably not going to tell her, I don't want, you know, you may or may not, you might, depends. You might just go, let's focus on, you know, qualitative food differences. Like, it's not like you have to start actively dieting from day one to begin with. Usually as trainers, we kind of like, okay, let's look at your overall eating patterns, Let's look for the big red flags that we can fix. Like, let's not think calorie restriction. Let's think food modifications that can get you to where you want. So I'm not, you know, you don't absolutely have to do this, and it may not always be practical, but in an idealistic sense, this is kind of the pattern that would work best. But certainly, if you are dieting long-term and you want to do that diet break, if it's two weeks, do it in the second half of your cycle. If for some reason you only want to do one week, do it in week four. Right, that is, like I said, that is premenstrual, premenstrual tension week anyway. That is the week where if women are gonna feel bad, that's when it's typically gonna happen. If there's a week where you probably wanna just increase your calories and not worry too hard when you feel horrible anyway, that's the week to do it. And then when you start feeling good again, if you start menstruating, then you can start back on your diet and diet for however long, four, eight more weeks or seven or whatever it works out to, take another diet break and you just kind of stair-step your body fat down while avoiding feeling like you're dieting forever, right? People don't think about this. If you've got a lot of body fat to lose, you know, I tell you, you're going to have to diet for the next six months. I, you can't do it. Mentally, you cannot handle that. If I tell you, I want you to diet for 10 weeks and then 
take a break, that's much easier. Or eight weeks, go, okay, I can diet. Same thing with these refeed, these calorie maintenance days, if you include them. If I tell you, you have to diet every day for the next eight weeks, I'm like, oh man, what a drag. I go, hey, one day a week, I want you to eat at maintenance so that you can go out to dinner with your family or your significant other or actually have a life. Go, well, now we only have to die for like four days at a time. I can do that, right? Anybody can die for four days at a time. And that's a very different mentality. Same with exercise. If I tell you, I want you to train every day, you never get a break, right? If I say I want you to train six days a week and take Sunday off, you get a mental break because now it's only six days without a break rather than never. And there is a hugely different psychology to that. The example I like to use, and then we'll wrap up. If you're driving a long distance, right? This may be the U.S. thing. And overseas, if you drive a long distance, you've gone through three countries. In the U.S., you've gone through Texas because our state is – our Texas is 16 hours from end to end and eight hours through the narrow bit. But, right, if I'm doing a, a cross-country drive where I'm going to be driving for 20 hours, I can't think of it in those terms. What I can think of is I'm going to drive to the next town where I need gas, which is three hours away. I can drive for three hours and then take a break. And then I can drive for three more hours until I get bored and stop and, get a good, and go to sleep or whatever. Same thing here. The diet breaks break your dieting up into concrete, into discrete time periods. Also, you can use diet breaks. Like, let's say, hey, I've been dieting. I'm going on holiday, vacation, whatever it is. Well, you know, you, you don't want to go on vacation and be on a diet right? I'm not saying eat everything you can, but you might as well go ahead. And, but again, plan it because otherwise you're like, oh man, I've been on my diet and now I'm going to fall off my diet because I'm weak and I don't have any willpower. No, don't think that way. Just plan it. Go, okay, I'm going to take a week off because I've, I've done my, what I needed to do for 10 weeks. I'm going to give myself a break. You are now in control of it. And when you start again, ideally in the beginning of, the fa- beginning of your menstrual cycle, whatever you can get right back on the wagon it's a different way of reframing it but scheduling wise ideally you know refeeds if you can put them in the second half of the or sorry diet break second half of the cycle to restart your diet if you use days at maintenance those can kind of depend they go on the week it varies a lot there's a bunch of information in the book but you know general dieter put it on a friday or saturday when you have social events so you can go be a human being yeah, and yeah. not be that not be that guy that, that, that person who goes to the event and goes, what do you mean there's no plain chicken breast for me? Don't, or, or, or worse yet, take your food in a Tupperware. Don't, don't be that person. <laughs> yeah, taking into consideration the psychology, but also, like you said, no one's spoken about it much, but the physiology of women yes. is something that's not been spoken about. And like I said, this is the main reason I wanted you on, Lyle, because yeah. you are you're putting a lot of work into this field and it's great to see. And I'm sure a lot of women will appreciate this episode and appreciate your book as well, which if you want to just give a quick shout out to where they can get that and where they can find more about you and your work. Cause I'm yes. sure we could have um, gone all day about the, um, the female. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, that's, that's why the book got so out of control. It would have been 700 pages if I hadn't broken it up. So my, my website is bodyrecomposition.com. Uh, I have some ridiculous number of articles. I think I've, I'm, I think I've come up to about 600 because I've been doing this a really long time. Mostly on nutrition, I talk about beginner training and a lot of different things. Um, 
my store, store.bodyrecomposition.com. All my books are there. Women's book, Rapid Fat Loss, which you mentioned. My original guide to flexible dieting, which I wrote 15 years ago. Um, I just wrote a little book on birth control and athletic performance that that's another three hour pod. That is such a complicated topic. It took me months to figure it out. But a big question is women who are on birth control. I mean, it comes up all the time. Probably less so, you know, if they're athletes, will it affect my athletic performance, my muscle gain? But more importantly, will I gain weight? Will I gain fat? Will it make it harder for me to lose weight and fat? I addressed all of this in what is admittedly a more directed booklet. Uh, the, the deal I made with myself was that no chapter would be longer than five pages, and I would not go down the rabbit hole of details that only I care about. And did a pretty good job. It's 50 pages across 10 chapters. It's very, I mean, it's got the science for the people that want it, but it's very applied. I talk about and make recommendations for different situations. Um, so that's all, all that's at my store. Um, my forms are currently down and are, they weren't active anyway. The best place to find me personally is in my Facebook group, which is called Body Recomposition, like everything else that I, because that's my brand. Um, I'm there daily. I always like to point out that I tend to be surrounded by people that are experts in their field. My group has a fantastic OBGYN, several top-notch physiologists. We got physicians. I got experts in everything. Any, any question that I can't answer, and there's lots of them, there will be somebody in my group who can address it with expertise. And I learn from them all the time. I love, like, so it's crazy. People can have the, some, uh, rare condition I've never even heard of or experiencing something rare. And there'll be three people in my group who are like, oh yeah, yeah, I went through that. It, it blows my mind on a daily basis. So to find me personally and I answer questions and put up videos and research studies and it's got all kinds of stuff in there. Um, that's the best place to like find me with, with questions or stuff like that. So. Awesome. Thank you very much, Lyle. And I'd be great to, in the future, maybe get you on to talk about the birth control. Oh, no, absolutely. Yeah. Um, like you, say, you think women's physiology is complicated. Birth control is almost worse. Awesome. Thanks very much, Lyle. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening to the Fat Fix podcast. And I hope you all enjoyed today's show. If you have not already, please make sure you subscribe and you don't miss out on any future episodes. I also can't stress enough how much it means to me, to those that have left me a star rating and written review on iTunes. This will ultimately help me reach more people like you and really help them too. So please give me two minutes of your time to do this if you haven't already. Lastly, any shares and mentions on social media is also massively appreciated. I will see you very soon for the next episode. Thank you very much.